Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Welcome to Material Girls, a scholarly podcast about popular culture. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And today we are talking about one of Marcel's all-time favorite books, Aaron Morgenstern's 2011 debut novel, The Night Circus. I just, I just think it's really important to stress here that because it's one of my favorite books, I need everybody listening to know that they need to be really nice about it because as a Pisces, I base my own value exclusively on the value of the things that I care about. So be nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is like a cool, healthy way to enjoy things. Hannah, do you like the book? Am I good? (laughs) Marcel, I have mixed feelings about this book. Damn it. Do you have mixed feelings about me too? (laughs) (laughs) Here's what I have realized. So I had, in fact, read this book years ago, and I didn't particularly like it, which means that you and I never talked about that's it. That's true. Because, because that's how the law because works. Because I am a cool and healthy person. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was very delighted to begin this reread via audiobook mm-hmm. and to find in the first few hours that I was having a wonderful time. Mm-hmm. And to text you enthusiastically about it, which you responded to with (laughs) discouragement. I silenced you. (laughs) 
I was like, Marcel, I'm really, I'm really digging this book this time around. And you were like, shut up. <laughs> that is, that is a text I sent you. Shut up, Hannah. I don't want to hear about it. What I will say is that at a certain point, and I think this is what happened in my first read through, at a certain point, I was like, we get it. It's a cool circus. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> I think maybe it's too much about event organizing <laughs> for my taste. <laughs> but this time around, what I really noticed, which I did think that I that I missed in the first round, was how totally this book is about just the vibes. Mm-hmm. This book is ninety seven percent vibes, three percent plot. <laughs> Yeah, I I get th- I don't disagree with you. I get that. I am definitely into a vibe heavy book provided that I am into the vibe. And I am into the vibe of the Night Circus. I mean, you and I both love an aesthetic assignment. Mm-hmm. I will say that. Mm-hmm. As noted by the way, we have both dressed today. I'm wearing an A-line skirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's so unnecessary. I know. I could be wearing, I could literally be wearing like my purple sweatpants right now and nobody would know. You could be Winnie the Pooh net right now and none of us would know. <laughs> it's time for Why This, Why Now, the segment wherein we consider the material conditions that allowed for our object of study to become zeitgeisty. So for the uninitiated, uh, I have a few details here about the publication of The Night Circus. I promise this section won't all be bullet points, but uh, just to just to give some, some quick facts, okay? The first drafts of the novel were indeed written during NaNoWriMo, the National Novel Writing Month, which is, quote, an annual international creative writing event in which participants attempt to write a 50,000-word manuscript during the month of November, end quote. That comes from Wikipedia, but it also comes from the website of NaNoWriMo. So the novel that we know and some of us feel uh, ambivalent about was published in 2011. Also published in September 2011 is the officially licensed interactive internet puzzle game based on the Night Circus. Fail Better Games was in fact approached by Random House to make the game. And fun fact, you can still play it, just not through Fail Better Games. And finally, the extremely well-produced audiobook read by Jim Dale of Harry Potter audiobook fame was also published in September of 2011. So all these things happening the same month a big splashy entrance into the market, if you will. Yeah. I mean, that tells us some really important things about what Random House thought about the possible success of this book. Mm-hmm. Because you do not pay to have Jim Dale read your book like prior to its publication. And it's it's a well-produced audiobook. Like, like he he did more than one take. <laughs> Unlike, this is my favorite complaint, unlike his reading of the Harry Potter books where he had literally never read them before and did no takes. He just opened the book, started reading, occasionally pauses. Okay, is that a theory? Sure, yeah, it's a theory based on the material evidence of how much the audiobooks suck. (laughs) I really doubt he did it in one take. I really doubt he did it in one take. But that this is all a sign that they really thought before this book even went 
out that it was going to be a big deal. Definitely. And it was. It was. It was indeed. Okay, so uh, I went back through my uh, book reading app, and according to my borrowing record at the Edmonton Public Library, I first read The Night Circus in September of 2019. So Hannah, tell me, does anything in particular jump out at you about September 2019 in relation to the Night Circus? Yes, yes. Eight years after the book came out. <laughs> it's really, or no, and like really recent, actually, like four years ago. Yeah, so I like literally completely missed the zeitgeistiness of this, my favorite book. I'm sure we are going to get more into this, but it's always really complicated to talk about zeitgeistiness around a book because books circulate so differently from other media and function so differently from other media. And with the exception of like a small handful of titles, basically never like arrive at the level of collective zeitgeistiness that say like a really popular blockbuster movie will. Like right. we don't really have blockbuster books in quite the same way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it certainly is a book that I associate with like a particular kind of bookishness. Mm. Like I think The Night Circus is often the favorite book of people who also own reading socks. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. When did you read The Night Circus the first time? You know what? I have no idea. Oh, okay. I don't have a I don't have a clear document like you do. Because um, I'm cool and healthy. <laughs> I well, I you know, I also don't think that I got it from the library, so I don't have like a like a way of of checking. Maybe I bore I definitely read it mm -hmm. and I don't currently own it. Okay. So I don't make make of that what you will. I will. Um but I read it like years and years ago, probably quite close mm -hmm. to when it originally came out. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I definitely read it because a lot of people were talking about it mm -hmm. and had really built it up as like, if you like fantasy, you are going to love this book. Mm. And I read it and I remember being underwhelmed, mm -hmm. which is, alas, one of the many possible functions of a book being zeitgeisty mm -hmm. is that it gets recommended to you so hard and so often yeah. and so enthusiastically that by the time you actually read it, you're like, well, this isn't changing my life as promised. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting to revisit it via audiobook mm -hmm. because I read it in in material, uh, like a print format. The first time around. Yeah. The audiobook is 15 hours. I'm eight hours in. <laughs> and I need you to know that that eight hours happened in the last two days. Yeah. So, yeah. So I really binged the first half of this book. And then I read the Sparks Notes to find out what happens at the end. Okay. So one of the reasons why I wanted us to talk about how and when we read the book um, is because I think these are essential to the argument that I'm going to be building, that I'm going to be weaving mm. together overall. So I first heard about the book on Instagram. I tried to figure out what the specific post was, but I, I could not. It was because it was years ago. It was 2019. Years ago. And Instagram search function is shit. It's absolute garbage. So I don't know who recommended it. And so I don't know who to thank for changing me as a woman. <laughs> but somebody did. 
Somebody actually turns out I don't like hearing you refer to yourself as a woman. So oh, never do that again. As a woman, <laughs> somebody somebody said that they enjoyed it. So I borrowed the audiobook from the library and thus became changed. Okay. So you saw the book first via Instagram. Mm-hmm. And then you, I assume, used an app to log onto your public library site to get the book, the audiobook. That's right. So I listened to the audiobook using the app Libby, which I think you also use. Big fan sure of Libby. Do. And I used my phone to access it. So this is going to bring me to the first of my two major whys. Oh, why this? Why now then? We're going to talk about the digital turn. Mm, Marcel, you know I love a turn. I believe in my heart that you do because scholars. I do I love a turn? Scholars love to talk about a turn. So Hannah, I had to literally look up what a turn is according to the OED. So I would love it if you could just explain to listeners what we mean when we say a turn. I mean, when I think about a turn in terms of how we we talk about it in scholarship or in theory in particular, I think of it as like the emergence of a new focused conversation generally around a different method. Mm -hmm. So you'll have like the ethical turn Mm -hmm. where people start talking about reading and ethics. There was a political turn in the 90s -hmm. when people really shifted from like a purely aesthetic discussion of literature to being like, ah, but what about politics? And there's like historical turns Mm -hmm. and there's affect turns and I think it's kind of about new trends mm-hmm. in scholarship, but we don't refer to trends in academia because we're... We're broken. We're fundamentally broken people. <laughs> yeah. But I see here you've actually given me a, a like an OED definition. I did. I pulled out the OED definition because I was like, you know what? What if Hannah has literally never heard of a turn? How far down in the word turn did you have to scroll before you found specifically (laughs) this definition of turn? I'm very good at Googling, and I Googled define turn in scholarship. Ooh, ooh, God. (laughs) You know what? Having a PhD makes you good at Googling. It's like the best (laughs) thing about it. Okay, so here's what the OED says about turn. They define it as, quote, a change in emphasis in the discourse of the humanities and social sciences reflecting a recognition beyond the academic bounds of history itself of the importance of historical context and historical processes, end quote. Oh, so it's specifically about historicizing? I believe so, yeah. Coach, put the stinger in here. Put it here. Put it here. We need it. Historicize, historicize. It's always time to historicize. Yeah, because you can't talk about a turn until you're able to look back on it. Oh my God, of course. You can't, you draw, you're always turning away from something. Mm -hmm. And you don't always realize that you've turned away from it until you turn and it's not there anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So so the digital turn is like specifically when the humanities and social sciences were like, uh uh-oh, we have to talk about the internet, whether we want to or not, because everything's (laughs) on the internet now. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't like, we don't use digital technology. Technology just is digital. Like our our lives are entirely mediated by the internet. And that's why we have not only new media, but new, new media, which is... Oh, new, new media. (laughs) Ooh, you know what? We have new, new media in like 
2010. So what do we have now? No, 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 media. No, 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 no. Neo new. Neo new. Ooh, neo new. You're welcome, scholars. I was inside the digital turn, Marcel. Gross. I started my <laughs> master's in 2008 mm-hmm. and immediately started doing digital humanities work. Yeah. So I was like nestled inside the sweaty elbow of that turn. Is that a good metaphor? Why are you so gross? <laughs> Abject. Okay. So as you experienced wetly, our mm. digital turn absolutely took place throughout the aughts. But my very, very preliminary research suggests that it was around the year 2011. We're talking like 2010, 2011, 2012, when social critics and uh, scholars and indeed the numerous hand ringers of the world were starting to talk about how technology is our new normal and how it is ruining reading. Yeah. If I recall <laughs> correctly, it was a lot of anxious white men authors in particular Indeed. who were like, if you read books on a screen, you are destroying humanity. That's true. Maybe I'm spoiling something you're going to talk about, but they you are the same demographic of guys have written very similar moral panic essays about YA in particular. Mm, Coincidence? Literally not. Literally not. There is one exception to this. Oh, okay. Is it one man of color? It's one man of color, yes. Okay. <laughs> but let's let's talk about some of these new media that in the 20 aught tweens uh, had become commonplace. So Hannah you know a lot about podcasting in the 20 aught tweens. I mean, when people talk about the history of podcasting, it dates back much earlier than this, but the moment when it became truly mainstream as a medium was 2014, which is when This American Life launched their first ever spinoff podcast, which was their first ever podcast they'd made that wasn't radio first, mm -hmm. but was made just to be a podcast. And that was, of course, S-Town. I'm just joking. It was serial. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I still, I really love the fact that Ira Glass, who was the, you know, executive producer, executive producer, I don't know, whatever. He's the boss. Like went on the Tonight Show to promote serial and it included him showing people how to use the podcasting app on their iPhones. Because it was still enough of a sort of niche digital medium. I mean, it existed for, it had already existed for like a decade. But the people who used it tended to still be sort of early adopter types. And so he like came on and was like, all right, so your phone has this app. Mm -hmm. Like it showed people how to subscribe to a podcast. Yeah. So this is like right in the thick of that moment. Yeah. So podcasts. They're not the everyday, but they are happening. They're a, they are a normal thing. So even if people aren't listening to podcasts, they know what they are. It's not a new word. Yep. We also have audiobooks. Mm -hmm. So speaking of podcasts, <laughs> one of the very first ads that I ever remember hearing on a podcast, these early podcasts that I was listening to, predominantly by white men, was Audible. So the audiobook app being advertised to podcast listeners. Which makes perfect sense to me because it was an app that required like familiarity with a digital interface and willingness to like 
try out a new subscription model for a technology. And again, it's going to be like a certain demographic who are willing to be like, cool, I will download this app. I will Mm -hmm. subscribe for this service. I will learn this new way of interacting with audiobooks as a medium. Audible's, Audible's big pull was that you could get a free audiobook. You could download for free the audiobook of your choice. And I remember listening to those ads yeah, and being like... It's not like, free. It's, it's your monthly subscription cost. But they do say, pay a monthly subscription and you'll get a free audiobook, which is a very funny way to spin paying a certain amount of money every month for an <laughs> audiobook. I definitely remember listening to the ad and being like... Free book? Free book? Give it to me. Yeah. The other thing that was just starting to emerge right around that time, of course, was dedicated e-readers. That's right. So like the Kobos, the Kindles. The Kobos and Kindles and the Kobos and the Kindles. That's right. And then with the popularity of Kobos and Kindles, we also get people using their smartphones and then eventually the introduction of tablets. Oh yeah, we're getting new devices every second in this uh, this period. Yeah, all these new devices just just slapping the print book in the face. <laughs> oh my God. And people were so freaked out. They were so freaked out. They were like, this is it. This is the end of this is the end of books. The book is dead. Yeah. Yeah. So I did a little bit of Googling, trying to find some examples of this widespread moral panic. And so these are the <laughs> these are the white men, <laughs> plus one exception, who you were referring to earlier. So um, so in 2009, Sherman Alexi called Kindle's elitist. He got into quite a bit of trouble for saying that he wanted to slap a woman or he wanted to hit a woman who was holding one. People got very upset about misogyny. And- <laughs> cool, Turns out it's like, not that she was a woman. That's not why he wanted to hit her. He wanted to hit her because she was reading a Kindle. Anyway, so he backpedaled hard. Yeah, because when a woman reads a Kindle, you can't tell that she's reading books that you want to judge her for. That's true. You can't let her just read whatever she wants in public. She could be reading something that is not suitably literary. And how can you make her feel small about it? (laughs) In 2010, this is the one, this is the one that I found that sent me. So in 2010, the Huffington Post, a real a, a real website, <laughs> a real website that writes about real things, ran a column by a poet named Alan Kaufman called Google Books and Kindles, a concentration camp of ideas. And in this column, Kaufman literally describes ebooks as a Nazi, quote, dream come true, end quote. In 2011, Jonathan Franzen described ebooks as, quote, just not permanent enough, end quote. (laughs) In 2014, I know I'm skipping a few years, but here we are. In 2014, The Guardian, yet another real website that publishes real stories. It ran an opinion piece by Philip Henscher, who claimed that It should be a golden age for reading, but it isn't because electronic communication means we aren't reading books. Oh, no. Oh, no. We're reading reading emails instead. Oh, no. We're reading screens. Gross. (laughs) Gross. Disgusting. Foolish boys. Foolish boys. Foolish boys. Okay, so we've got the digital turn and we've got the ensuing moral panic um, (laughs) that books will simply die. (laughs) 
But Marcel, you said there were two two whys. I did. I did. Two whys. Let's get to the second. And Hannah, you're not going to believe this. This is going to come as a wild shock. What? Not what, but why. The second why is Harry fucking Potter. So You promised me we would never have to talk about it again. I know, I know, I know. And when I was doing research for this episode, I was like, oh no, <laughs> I lied. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> running into your ex on the street. Yeah, it is. It's like running into my ex on the street, but like not just, not my high school ex, but like, no, but no, like no. My, my life partner ex. Yeah, <laughs> Oops. yeah. You were together for a decade. Oh, awkward. Okay, so 2011... This was a naive time. Most of us, perhaps, not, probably not all, but most of us were deeply ignorant of the depth of J.K. Rowling's transphobia. We were largely still enamored with the Harry Potter series. We were still leaving socks on the beach where Dobby died. And uh, with the release of the Warner Brothers movie adaptation, Deathly Hallows Part 2, we genuinely thought that we were saying goodbye to the Harry Potter era. We thought that it would go quietly into the night <laughs> and we could mourn privately. <laughs> <laughs> we were fools. Or we were, again, I'm going to keep thinking about this from the perspective of publishing, mm -hmm. where it's like every time a new Harry Potter book comes out, it's like, oh, we get a huge infusion of cash into, into the publishing industry. <laughs> and then, the, you know, with the movies as well. It's like, cool, the movies come out, the book's going to sell really, really well, mm -hmm. like extra well. Yeah. And with the end of that cycle, it becomes like, uh-oh, how do we get people to buy millions of books? <laughs> <laughs> Turns out there'll be multiple opportunities to revisit this series. We just didn't know about them yet. So the timing of the end of Harry Potter is really what makes it such a kind of formidable predecessor of, of Night mm -hmm. Circus. And so yeah, absolutely. you and I have talked at length about Harry Potter and the internet. Could you do me a solid and just give our give our listeners just like a like a, a quick reminder of the ways in which Harry Potter grew up with the internet? Yeah, for sure. So so this is something we've theorized a number of times, but sort of one potential significant factor in how huge the Harry Potter series was is the fact that it emerged right around the same time as sort of Web 2.0's birth of online fandoms. Mm -hmm. And Harry Potter became one of the major texts that people produced fan fiction about. Mm -hmm. And then very early on started making like fan videos, right? We've got the fan-made musical which was really significant that then, you know, was a unique in-person event, but got filmed and shared on YouTube. And so became another digital site for the emergence of this fandom. Mm -hmm. And because so much of this fandom got tied up in particularly online behaviors, then as the books continued to come out, the publisher very intelligently continued to invest in online infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, so things like Pottermore with its like sorting quizzes mm -hmm. in the sense that you could like enter Harry Potter via the site, mm -hmm. you know, game adaptations, and then add into that like the audiobooks, the movies, like mm -hmm. it became like a major transmedia phenomenon in an era when like the idea of a single property that you have to be engaging with like seven or eight different mediums to like truly 
be experiencing all of it. Like, it was a pretty new idea. Like, the Harry Potter series was quite groundbreaking in the sense of, like, really leaning into the use of digital media to to build up and embrace fandoms and the, the readerships that are connected to fandoms. Bless you. And now, because you've given us that that recap, we don't have to talk about it. <laughs> we Ooh, never need to talk right. about it again. So the Night Circus emerges fully and polished in and of the digital era with all the digital era's benefits. And it's like right there to satisfy us hungry adults who have been letting go of Harry Potter as gradually as possible, a magical world in which we might enter as spectators, perhaps even be invited in with special privileges like a Bailey or a Herr Friedrich Thiessen, or perhaps we might actually join, whether as a long-suffering competitor like a Celia or a Marco, or simply a performer like Isabel, Tsukiko, or the Murray twins, or perhaps even a conspirator like Chandrish, Christophe Lefebvre, the Burgess sisters, Mr. Barris, Tante Padva. Okay, Marcel, Marcel, you are waltzing into a thesis statement. Mm. Two segments too early. You <laughs> haven't even given me some theory to snack on. I know, I know. Where is the caramel popcorn theory? Okay, Ugh. you're right. Let's do it. My apologies, folks. I started fantasizing my way into my favorite book when my essential task is to introduce the theory that I found to help explain my relationship to my favorite book. Thank you. Stop enjoying things and think (laughs) about them. You know, Marcel, it's not for nothing that we call this section the theory we need. I know, we do. We need it. (laughs) We need it. the whole point. Okay, so I found a book with a great title, and Hannah, I think you would really like it. I think you would like it so much that I bet you've even taught it in the past. Yeah, I've for sure taught this book. (laughs) (laughs) So the book is called Book Was There, Reading in Electronic Times by Andrew Piper. I love the title. So charming. It's a great book. Really good book. And I chose it not only because of the fun title that references a Gertrude Stein poem, but also because it was published in 2012. And I really wanted something that could help me work through this anxiety and moral panic that characterized that early digital age. And mm-hmm. I think I think that Piper does a great job of providing us with this like cultural and material history of reading while also very, very beautifully reflecting on his own personal reading practices um, Mm -hmm. instead of being like, (laughs) this kind of reading is bad. I'm getting ahead of myself, but he's he's not prescriptive. He's not critical of different reading practices. He introduces his book by explaining that he is, quote, interested in understanding how we relate to reading in a deeply embodied way, end quote. And so throughout this exploration, his organizing metaphor for reading is to think of reading as an ecosystem in which live and thrive multiple different ways of engaging with text. So, Hannah, would you kindly give us an amuse-bouche by reading this, uh, this quotation about books for me? With pleasure. Quote, 
the spines, gatherings, threads, boards, and folds that once gave a book its shapeliness that fit it to our hands are being supplanted by the increasingly fine strata of new reading devices integrated into vast woven systems of connection. If books are essentially vertebral, contributing to our sense of human uniqueness that depends upon bodily uprightness, digital texts are more like invertebrates, subject to the laws of horizontal gene transfer and non-local regeneration, end quote. Mm, God, I love it. I love it. He is thinking a lot in this book about how the print book, the codex, mm-hmm. as we tend to refer to it when we are trying to distinguish what we mean by like this particular material form of the print book, mm-hmm. um, that the codex was designed gradually over hundreds of years mm-hmm. to be perfectly fit to the human body. Mm-hmm. And it's a brilliant piece of technology that we very slowly and deliberately created to be the sort of organic extension of the human body. And so, you know, this this becomes a metaphor throughout this, like, this idea of the technology that feels organic and, like, quote-unquote natural, despite the fact that it's not. We developed it over a really long time. Mm-hmm. And then how those, like, organic metaphors and ideas get disrupted and disturbed by these new ways of engaging with text. Yeah, definitely. Where I see the big difference for me in my different reading practices is largely related to the way that I read for work. So if I'm reading something to teach it, I typically have it up on a screen in the way that you're describing, like, you know, I've got like the PDF, et cetera, I'm highlighting. But if I'm reading something that I plan to write about, I tend to either have the physical book or if I can't access a physical copy that I can then mark up and highlight, I will print it. And then one of the things that I really notice about myself when I'm reading something that I plan to write about is that the the embodied way that I read is like physically painful. Like I I contort Mm. my body into these positions that hurt me. And I don't know why I do that. I don't know why, but like I have my, my head is bent at an awkward angle. I have my like shoulder up. Sometimes I find when I'm like writing and highlighting in a book, I have, I have, I have turned myself like almost 90 degrees away from the writing surface that I'm using. Like there's no need for it. There's no need for it. But for some reason, I have, I like, I like force my body to suffer in order to, to read deeply. And I'm not saying that this is good. (laughs) I want to emphasize (laughs) that this is not good. You believe like the scribes of old, you must suffer for your knowledge. I might as well read by candlelight because I am not doing (laughs) my eyes any favors. Yeah. Like the ancient scribes of yore. Hey, Speaking of the ancient scribes of yore, doesn't Andrew Piper have like a whole bunch in these books about like how the different reading postures we have come out of these different historical contexts? Indeed he does. So his first chapter is about hands and it's about the way, the, the, the physical, the physiological way that we hold books in our hands. 
arguing that, quote, the book's graspability in a material as well as spiritual sense is what endowed it with such immense power in the foundation of Western humanistic learning, end quote. So like for Piper, hands and reading not only shape quite literally the material and sociological development of this object that we call a book, the codex, but the book, and this is this is where I got very excited. The book shapes the way that we see and think about and perceive the world. Yeah. So, Hannah, mm-hmm. as a publishing scholar, could you remind us a little bit about the way that the book has been fetishized over centuries as somehow more than a mere material object? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the book has been um, sort of tied into all kinds of institutions of learning and religion and power in ways that have made it like metaphorically associated with a lot of things for a really long time, um, you know, and and. For example, you know, books used to be in medieval Europe were produced almost entirely within monasteries and very few people had access to them. So there were these rare and often sacred objects. And then as books begin to become mass produced, there's a lot of related cultural anxiety around the idea that this thing that had been sacred and elite and that had like gradually developed all of this, this metaphorical weight around like how we understood the world, how we like literally read the world around us, that at the same time that the book starts to become an an industrial mass-produced object, the book industry also starts investing a lot in the idea that books continue to have a sacredness or a specialness to them as mm-hmm. objects. Mm-hmm. So we see in the 19th century a lot of really deliberate anthropomorphizing of books, sort of an investment of humanness or personness in books, such that the idea of building a library becomes not what it literally is, which is a sign of wealth and prestige, <laughs> but also a sort of extension of who you are as a person. And that's, as I have argued elsewhere, the sort of root of a lot of contemporary bookish culture where having a bunch of books on your shelves becomes like a very weighted metaphor for like the kind of person you are. So because we've had these conversations, you and I, before, um, this part wasn't particularly new for me. But what Piper really helped me understand is that through this process of of making the book supersede its material value, the embodied practices of reading books in turn come to shape, you know, how we perceive the world. And so Piper points out that while the moral panic around the digital claims that looking is replacing reading, he reminds Mm -hmm. us that, quote, reading in the 18th century was gradually colonizing the world of looking, end quote, which is like a wild and unexpected reversal of this panic that we're having. Yeah. I mean, the very premise that reading is better than looking has a history. Yeah. And so so Piper, Piper arguing that we have forgotten the, quote, role that books have played in shaping our perception 
end quote, is is really central to what is so psychically upsetting about the so-called end of the book. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the sites of anxiety that I hear about a lot is the anxiety about, say, preservation, about our understanding of access, preservation, and Simply loss. not permanent enough. Simply not permanent enough. So, Hannah, would you do me a solid, please, and read the next quotation? Quote, What strikes me as even more important is not this apparent choice between preservation and loss, between claims of one medium being more or less stable than another. Rather, at issue is understanding the way these two categories, the lost and found, mutually inform one another as conditions of knowledge. The sense of Prince durability depended upon an imagined sense of the perishability of handwriting, although this was by no means actually the case. Compare the longevity of many medieval manuscripts with the fragility of Renaissance chapbooks or much 19th century ephemera, and you will see what I mean. Printed books, too, can come and go, end quote. <laughs> and do, which is part of why <laughs> the collective imagining of books as synonymous with the durability of knowledge, mm-hmm. I think, underpins the panic that people who do not work in the world of books experience when they find out how much every single person who actually works with books, librarians, publishers, booksellers, are constantly destroying books. <laughs> constantly. So many books are pulped. So many books are deacquisitioned. So many books are thrown out. We are getting rid of books all the time. <laughs> and people are like, you what? And it's like, okay, do you want 10,000 extra copies of Fifty Shades of Grey? Indeed, I do Do not. you want a 25-year-old set of encyclopedias <laughs> that are super racist? <laughs> like, we just don't keep them all. We can't. We shouldn't. So again, it's not it's not that the digital or the print should be in competition with one another in terms of which is, say, lossier, but that the way we think about access and preservation is shaped by the history of the book. So I have another quotation from Piper that I'm that I will I will read because I think it follows very nicely from what you are describing, Hannah, about the way that folks who work with books, in fact, work with throwing away books. Quote, scholars of the future will no doubt troll libraries to locate lost print editions of undigitized texts, just like their print predecessors scoured libraries for lost manuscripts. But what matters to such future endeavors is not some ultimate hoped-for completion of the digital record, that we will digitize all the books or all the pieces of paper in the world, or that all digital texts will be preserved forever. Rather, these archival practices are important because they engage in the oscillatory rhythms of the lost and found of historical thinking, something that was itself very much a product of modern bookish learning, end quote. Oh, I love it. I mean, this, this, this goes back to what you were saying about turns. Like, we can't know everything at the same time. We can't focus on everything at the same time. And our sense of, like, how we lose and find and, dis- you know, rediscover and forget pieces of information is shaped by how closely we align 
information and learning specifically with the book as an object that can be shelved in a library that we can stumble across. That's right. That's right. So to get back to this idea of reading as an ecosystem, because this is what I really love about Piper, um, Piper argues that, quote, the way the book emerged as one of the single most important cultural objects after 1800 was a function of its integration with other ways Mm. of expressing ourselves, the theater, visual arts, polite conversation, or writing by hand. The book was imagined to be a single, all-encompassing medium, and yet this belied the truth of its own heterogeneity and the diverse ways it was woven within a broader field of communication, end quote. So for Piper, the success of the book wasn't that it was a magic technology, unlike, for example, the iPad, but that it invited, quote, the same information processed in different ways and woven together, end quote. There's a word for this, and Hannah, I bet you know what it is. I think I do, because it's written right here on the screen, and I think that word is redundancy. That's right. Like, a big part of redundancy is the idea of having multiple copies of things, is having, like, a bunch of a thing. Mm -hmm. A book is not useful if you only have a single copy of the book. You need to have a bunch of copies of the book so that a bunch of different people can read it and annotate it in different ways and share what they've come up with with other people. And then other people are not going to read that book. They're going to watch the stage adaptation of that book, or maybe they'll do both. And then, so it's like the the non-uniqueness of the knowledge is really key to how we think about the value of the printed book. And the the idea of the information in the book appearing only in that book, also not particularly useful. The information needs to be considered and reconsidered across multiple different channels, right? Like that's, it might be multiple books. It might be, it might be speeches. It might be conference papers. Like, like the idea of, of redundancy is that ideas are not complete in their uniqueness. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Ideas are complete. Maybe ideas are never really complete. Ideas are important and useful. Circulate. That's right. Ideas are important and useful in their circulation. And so Piper is arguing for the expansion of these channels in which our ideas circulate. When I taught this book, a big part of how I was trying to teach my students was the idea that a new medium doesn't kill an old one. Mm -hmm. Would you do me a a favor and and read this little recap here and tell me if I hit all the, (laughs) if the recap hits all the important points? Okay, so recap. The digital turn felt threatening to the humanities in particular because our disciplines and our society more generally have evolved around the book. So the book feels fundamental to our society. We can't imagine our way out of it, like what Ursula K. Le Guin says about capitalism. We live under capitalism. It feels inevitable. So did the divine right of kings. That is right. Yes. Okay. So Piper's intervention, at least the intervention that worked on me, Mm. was his effort to redirect the conversation about print versus digital by removing the verses. So Hannah, would you do me the honor of reading this final quotation? I just realized where you're taking us and I got really excited. Oh, good. (laughs) Quote, 
it is time to put an end to the digital utopias and print eulogies, bookish venerations and network gothic and tired binaries like deep versus shallow, distributed versus linear, or slow versus fast. Now is the time to understand the rich history of what we have thought books have done for us and what we think digital texts might do differently. We need to remember the diversity that surrounds reading and the manifold and sometimes strange tools upon which it has historically been based. The question is not one of verses of two single antagonists squaring off in a ring. Rather, the question is far more ecological in nature. How will these two very different species and their many varieties coexist within the greater ecosystem known as reading? End quote. Marcel, you're so smart. You know what? No, honestly, this fell into my lap. Do you want to hear my thesis? Yeah, I really do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right. Hold on to your red scarves, folks, because it's time for In This Essay, I Will, the segment where all that reading and quoting culminates in a hot take that we academics like to call a thesis. All right. The year 2011 was simply a different time. Although we were still years away from J.K. Rowling's public meltdowns about biological sex, we thought we were saying farewell to the Harry Potter series because the final movie adaptation, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part Two, was in theaters. At the same time, writers and commentators were reflecting on the relative longevity of digital communications, of the internet, and of the new tools being developed and marketed to accommodate the undeniable existence of a digital turn. Indeed, these new technologies allowed us to carry our fan communities around in our pockets. Change, though, can be scary. And for many folks whose identities and careers were bound up in print media, these pocket-sized technologies threatened to displace, perhaps even replace altogether, the printed book. Consequently, a flawed and utterly unnecessary opposition was constructed around print versus digital reading. It is no surprise, then, that Aaron Morgenstern's debut novel about two competing schools of thought that seek not to collaborate and explore their respective strengths, but rather to vie for superiority in a fight to the death, would be an effective if invisible allegory, for the moral panic versus technological advancements in reading technologies. Plus, it's basically Harry Potter for adults. In this essay, I will argue that... Okay, yeah, let's talk about this book. Because what got me when I was reading that Andrew Piper quotation was where he talks about how we imagine the new and the old as rivals facing off against each other. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, fuck, yes, of course. So in this book, 
in the Night Circus, we've got these two protagonists, Celia and Marco, and they've both been raised in these like incredibly cruel fashions, but also in these environments shaped around two specific media. And one of them is the book and the other one is the stage. Yes. And so there's this sense that we've got, you know, the old versus new, the traditional versus the avant-garde, the sort of isolated and contemplative and theoretical versus the practical and material and experimental. And those are... The showy versus the subtle. The so- showy versus the subtle. Substance versus style. And mm-hmm. literally, they are raised to duel each other to be evidence of which school is superior. and. The stage in which their duel takes place is the circus that is is black and white, which I really didn't put together at all. It's like literally a landscape of binaries. It's like black and white, good and bad. These are the only options. You have to fight each other to the death. And then what starts happening very quickly is that they begin to collaborate That's right. And they begin to, like, push back against the idea that, you know, only one can win and that only one way is appropriate. And they begin Mm -hmm. to also, like, expand their community and, like, draw all of these other people in and ultimately undermine the entire premise that one has to be better than the other and that the two can't, in fact, be in exciting and ongoing dialogue with each other. That's right. That's right. So, Marcel, as we talk about this book, like, everything I've just said is basically the premise. Like, that's kind of the setup for the plot. We're going to avoid spoilers, yeah? Yeah, yeah. We can can definitely, we can and should avoid spoilers because I think that it's my favorite book. And so I think if folks want to read it and want it to be their favorite book too, you know, we, we love, we love to go in knowing as, as little as possible. And not only like what you're describing, not only is it the premise, but it is also possible to read the book without that being the premise that jumps out at you. You know, it is a book that, that welcomes numerous rereads as long as you can tolerate the heavy description of the circus content. (laughs) One thing I found myself really wondering as I was reading it was, I was thinking about, so it's set in Victorian England. And there's a Mm -hmm. lot of interest in the technologies of Victorian England um, that Mm -hmm. characterize the earliest days of modernity. So stage magic, for sure. Trains play a not insignificant role. Clocks and clockwork. And of course, books, which we don't think of as being a technology of the Victorian era, but that had become industrially reproduced mass market objects in this period. And then you also have to add into this, like, the possibility of this kind of spectacle, like what the circus is, is itself made possible by industrialization and the kinds of concentration of populations in urban centers, right? They, like, set up outside of cities. So as I was reading, I was thinking, like, why do, why do we imaginatively come back to Victorian England so much? Mm. You know, the steampunk of it all. The, like, <laughs> real fascination <laughs> with this period. And, mm-hmm. and part of it is that 
Victorian England essentially invented Western modernity. Like mm-hmm. so, so yeah. much of what we think about as modern Western culture is actually like a weird conceit of Victorian England. You know, an example I've used in the past is the idea of the white wedding dress, which people love mm-hmm. to be like, of course, a long history. And it's like, no, it was actually just a trend because Queen Victoria wore a white wedding dress. You know, speaking of looking at turns retrospectively, what you must, you must look at a turn retrospectively. I think the Victorian England, Victorian London, is really fascinating to us because of the speed of technological development. That we can see from a distance rather than being inside that of it. That we can see it. from a distance, yeah. yeah. And I think there's something that's still, there's something that's still very tactile about those technological developments that say we we kind of can't, maybe we will in the future, but we can't really see when it comes to things like microchips and nanotechnology and digital technology, like all of that, the magic of that stuff is all quite invisible to the average person. Whereas rich descriptions of like wrought iron fences that like bend and fold in this way that, that remind you of serpents or something like that, like that has a there's a texture to the technological developments of Victorian England that remains so fantastical, even in its mundaneness. Yes, and that fantasticalness is generated in retrospect. Mm-hmm. It is fantastical in part because it embodies the opposite of how we think about digital technology, which itself is also deeply material, but a materiality that is often deliberately obscured. See our previous episode about avatar and server farms <laughs> and the way in which the materiality <laughs> of the digital is deliberately hidden from us. So the profound tactility of Victorian technologies feels um, nostalgic mm-hmm. and refreshing yes. because yeah. it is so differentiated from from how we imagine technology now, despite the fact that like, go back and read some Thomas Hardy and you'll see that people were like, trains are going to be the death of us all. Man was not <laughs> meant to go so fast. Like... <laughs> People didn't, like, (laughs) greet new technology with open arms. And that technology, like, profoundly disrupted traditional ways of life and traditional, you know, ways of relating to time, for example, the industrialization of time, which transforms these sort of site-specific rhythms into one overriding, technologically managed understanding of time, which... It's not a coincidence that the first thing you see when you enter the night circus is a huge clock. Mm -hmm. A bespoke clock. A huge bespoke clock. And it's also not a coincidence that the night circus is characterized by its global movement because Mm -hmm. it is also like they put it on trains and move it around Mm -hmm. the world. I guess on steamships at some point as well because it goes to the U.S. somehow. Marco asks Celia how it moves, and she she says says by train. train. (laughs) She never says steamship. She never says steamship. It's a big train. (laughs) Just big train. (laughs) Listen, something's got to stay. You don't want to see how the sausage is made, okay? You don't want to explain everything. But it's, it's very specifically a technologically sophisticated and advanced 
globalized, circulating phenomenon that is also, I think, really deliberately tied into British imperialism Mm, in a number mm -hmm. of ways, including the sort of gesture towards the East via Chandresh, right? Which, like, connects us to the sort of rise of, of... Orientalism as a way of understanding the world and British imperialism in India and Mm -hmm. the way that that then brought in these sort of imaginations of the magical as being synonymous with the exotic, the mysterious East. You know, we've got this like one named mysterious Asian woman. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So like who is a contortionist. Who is a contortionist with a mysterious tattoo. Mm -hmm. So there's so like it's so densely packed with like Mm -hmm. Victorian trappings that Mm -hmm. are like, you know, about technology. Like Mm -hmm. so much of it is about technology, but it becomes like it's in some ways easier to make something about technology from a distance. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to I want to jump from what you're describing here to some of the ways that the book is uh if you will better than Harry Potter. <laughs> it does better and sometimes well a lot of the things that the Harry Potter series does poorly or insultingly. I think it does better than Harry Potter. And I think the the bar's low for Harry Potter. What I find really interesting is how, like, profoundly in conversation with Harry Potter this book is. Say more. Say more about that. So a huge part of the fandom that emerged around Harry Potter emerged around the fantasy of being able to move from one world into the next. Mm -hmm. This idea that like we're in this mundane world, it's full of cruelty, we don't feel like we fit in, and then one day somebody says, actually you get to go to this other place where Mm -hmm. things are magical and you will fit in and everybody's weird and weirdness is celebrated. Mm -hmm. And that becomes so crucial to sort of the way that the fandom emerges and develops. And that itself is ideologically at odds with the central understanding of the book, which is either you are a muggle or a wizard. Right. And if you are a wizard, you are allowed to go into this world. And if you're a muggle, you're not. That's right. You are not welcome. You are not part of it. You are disdained by most people in the wizarding world, Mm -hmm. with the exception of like a handful of people who kind of treat you like pets. Mm -hmm. And so none of us can participate in really participate in this magical world, except to the degree to which we disavow what we actually are, Um, (laughs) which has always been, you know, one of the really tricky things about it. Mm -hmm. And what I think this book gets a lot better is the porousness of that boundary, Mm. is the Mm -hmm. idea that that is a boundary that people can cross and that becomes self-selecting for the degree to which, like, some people encounter the magical possibilities of the circus mm-hmm. and have a great time mm-hmm. and then go back to their lives. That's right. They're like, this was really cool. I'm good here. And then other people encounter it and are like, this has changed me. Mm-hmm. And generally, the way in which it has changed them is that they like make art about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like the character, um, what's the the German clockmaker's name? Herr Friedrich Thiessen. Herr Friedrich Thiessen 
you know, becomes, like, comes to the notice of, you know, the people who work in the circus because he writes so beautifully That's right. about the circus because he is moved to write about it mm-hmm. because it has, like, captured him so mm-hmm. fully. And so the possibility of entering that world is truly available to anyone. It is not a birthright. It is not a biological truth. Mm-hmm. Which again, like Rowling loves a biological truth that <laughs> fits does. neatly into a category. Um, it is a a matter of participation in a community. Mm-hmm. You know, even the way that that this sort of fan community, the reverse, mm-hmm. emerges of you know people who like identify themselves as particularly deeply invested fans, mm-hmm. and they communicate to one another who they are by virtue of of wearing a red accessory when they enter the the circus but it's not an exclusive group it's not one that you have to like pay admission to it's not one you have to you just self identify by virtue of being real stoked yeah <laughs> which is kind of like a textual celebration of fandom too which is part of why i think yeah. this book really appeals so much to like a particular kind of bookish community who came up in say the like harry potter fandom fan fiction world is totally. like oh there's space for fans in the the world of this book and those fans are not treated with disdain if we think about friedrich Thiessen as sort of like the um he and bailey are the two fans who we get the most information about but presumably they're not the only two who are given these special access cards where they can go for free anytime. And then as the book progresses and gets closer to the end, we start to learn about all these other ways that the fans are in communication with one another. Again, you know, you know, pre pre web 2.0, they let each other you know, know. Even pre web 1.0. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. They let each other know oh, the circus is outside Munich. And then they go, and there's this incredible, what I find really beautiful about about the reverse is there's this incredible community of care that comes around. Like, they all understand that they have this thing in common, and they are willing to do whatever is necessary to support one another to participate. And we see that come to fruition through Bailey, like nearing near the end of the novel. I won't go into details because we're not spoiling it, but it's really quite lovely. And I really, I just really love the way that um, even though the premise of the competition between Marco and Celia is supposed to be that real magic must always be a secret, whether you are being showy about it or being subtle about it, gradually with the circus, it it becomes necessary to start inviting non-competitors into the development and the creation of it. And so as a person who once upon a time longed for my Hogwarts letter, it is, I think, really, really beautiful and satisfying to read about this magical world where you could participate in it without fucking it all up. You know, you can be trusted. (laughs) It's not actually black and white. You're not a muggle or a wizard. It's not black and white. There are splashes of red. Ah! The end. <laughs> Material Girls is a Witch Please production and is distributed by Acast. 
You can find the rest of our episodes and our other podcasts on ACAST or at ohwitchplease.ca. Our website may not be a circus exactly, but it has all kinds of fun stuff we think that you'll love, and it's always open. You can access our transcripts and reading lists, you can look at cute pics of our team, and you can check out our merch because you know what? It's never the wrong season to buy a hoodie. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or simply want to tell us that we're doing well, it's not a competition, but we thrive on praise, come hang out with us at Oh Witch Please on Instagram, Threads, and X, and on TikTok at Oh Witch Please Pod, where you get to see a lot of Gabby's perfect human face. But if you want to be the rêveur equivalent of a gender-neutral material girl, you should head over to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease and sign up for a genuine circus of bonus content. Perhaps you've heard the rumors that we've started a substack. It's true. Every month we offer a look at the roller coaster ride we call research that goes into our episodes. The best part is that your Substack subscription also gives you access to the Monthly Hoot, our unbelievably delightful monthly digest of recommendations, updates, and hot playlists for your listening pleasure. To subscribe to our Substack, head over to ohwitchplease.substack.com. And guess what? It's free. Oh, so free. So free. You can give us money for it, though, if you want. If you want. Special thanks to everyone on the Witch Please Productions team who keep the circus in coordinating colors, including our digital content coordinator, Gabby Iori, our social media manager and marketing designer, Zoe Mix, our sound engineer, Eric Magnus, and our executive producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. At the end of every episode, we will thank everyone who has joined our Patreon or boosted their tier to help make our work possible. Our enormous gratitude goes out to Erica W., Danielle C., Dusty, Mars MP, Mo, Charlotte D., Sunny I., Alexis, and Raina is Queen. We'll be back next episode to tackle another piece of pop culture through a whole new theoretical lens. But until then... Later, reverse and spectators. <laughs> We're really stretching this rhyme. <laughs> <laughs>